Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from an American futurist, innovator, author, and co-founder of the Global Business Network, a corporate strategy firm specializing in scenario planning. I think the core architecture of the technology is going to be around the personal digital assistant. I think everyone will have a personal digital assistant. It's the next platform after the smartphone. That was Peter Schwartz, Senior Vice President of Strategic Planning at Salesforce, who came into the FT to talk about the impact on our society of the next wave of technology focused on automating the brain. You've had a long career focusing heavily on scenario planning and corporate social responsibility. You've also acted as a script consultant for some sci-fi films, such as Minority Report, I believe. So you are the perfect person to help us gaze into the future, Peter. I'd like to start with the world of work. I mean, Salesforce is buried right in the world of work. You have this enormously privileged glimpse into so many companies around the world. What are we to make of the world of work at the moment? Are we living through an unprecedented technological revolution which is going to transform all our lives, or do you think we've seen it all before? I do think something quite unique is happening. It's unique in two important respects. Look, we've been through industrial revolutions before, steam, electricity, etc. And with each one came major disruptions, both for good and ill. People lost jobs, vast new industries were created along the way. But what is distinctive this time are two fundamental facts. First of all, it's happening faster than before. And secondly, it's going after something that's really quite unique, human cognitive capabilities, right? Mostly in the past, it went for human physical capabilities, the ability to lift, push, pull, etc. Now it's going for human judgment, perception, the capacity to think, control, and so on. And that is really quite distinctive. So both the speed of change and the nature of change is unique. So we're automating the brain, not just muscle. In this exactly right. What difference does that make in terms of the rate of job losses, though, that we could anticipate from this? Because, I mean, clearly vast swathes of manufacturing workers have been laid off in the developed West. Do you anticipate something similar happening to a lot of professional workers now, or will it be different? Well, I think you have to think about this not as a job, but a set of tasks. That is, what are those things that human beings do at work that can be automated by a machine? So routine physical tasks or routine intellectual tasks can be automated. Let's just take, for example, I have a personal assistant, okay? What does she do? Well, she organizes my travel, she organizes my schedule, she takes care of my expense reports, all of that. All three of those tasks could probably be done better by a bot, right? You told her that? Yes. However, the other part of her job, and the most important part, is relating to other people, making people that I deal with feel very well treated. So when someone wants to get in touch with me, making them feel like they've dealt with a real human being. When I have a need, reaching out to other people at an empathetic and human level. So in fact, her job is much more than simply doing expense reports that she should have an AI to help her do, right? That's the trivial part of her job. The part that is unique to really being a human being is understanding the needs of the people that I have to relate to. That's the most important part. But at Salesforce, you're working, as I was mentioning, with thousands of companies around the world. When I talk to them off the record, they will say that automation of a lot of these tasks is a fantastic way of reducing costs. They can see the elimination of people. They can absolutely buy into that argument that you're augmenting the capabilities of people as well, which is very important. 
but there will be a big net reduction in the well, workforce. I, I think they may be wrong about that. I think in the world of services, the place where it probably makes the biggest difference in absolute numbers may be in things like call centers, where maybe a portion of the jobs can be actually eliminated. That is the first line of call. So somebody calls in with a service need. I got a problem with my car or my computer or I've got a complaint on something. I call in. The first thing you may encounter may in fact be an AI who helps then direct you to a human being. And the goal, for example, we focused on that. Our goal is to enable people to get to the right human being in one step, right? We've all had the experience of calling in and say, oh, listen, I got a problem. And say, well, you need to speak to this department. And then they pass you on to another department or another department. Our goal is to use an AI to get that be one step to a human being who can actually then relate to you and then may use an AI to support themselves in the meeting of your needs. So we see it as actually beginning to take this task apart and take the trivial part and put it into a machine and the really empathetic and creative part and give it to a human being. Now that might lead to an absolute reduction. But let's take a look at retail, for example, another place where people expect losses, which I don't think will happen. We're working, for example, with Target, right? big US retailer. Today, what's happening is they're moving more and more people from the checkout counter, which is a routine task, to the floor of the store, right? Look, adding up the numbers when somebody checks out is a pretty boring job. On the other hand, helping a customer on the floor understand what's available, help them meet their needs, relating to them as a customer, making them feel very good, this is a unique human capability. So they're moving people from the checkout stand to the floor to actually relate to customers. So what the absolute shift in numbers is, hard to know, but it changes the nature of the job rather than eliminating it. And we're also going to see a lot of new jobs being created. Do you have thoughts of what kind of jobs and whereabouts they're going to be? Sure. And I think that is exactly the right question, right? That is, try to imagine the new jobs. From a history point of view, you think about travel, right? 1950, no one imagined that in 1975, they would be working at Disney World Paris, right? Hard to imagine. So it takes imagination. Let's just take three examples very quickly. One that's very obvious. It turns out that now as we're moving into this world of intelligent technology in our home, I don't know what it's like for you, but I'm a rocket scientist and I still can't get my Wi-Fi properly configured in my house and all my technology talking to each other. I need an IT home consultant. There's going to be a whole new generation of people who focus on making the home smart. One job. Second job, and this is a very important one. One of the issues with AI is the source of the data that feeds the algorithms and the quality of the algorithms that use that data. We're gonna need a whole new class of auditors, AI auditors, whose job it is to make sure that the AIs are using proper data and that the algorithms lead to proper conclusions. That category doesn't exist. But the one I particularly love where everybody is concerned is the truck driver of the future. Today, everybody's worried that automated trucks are gonna take over all the truck driving jobs. Well, think about a truck trying to get through downtown London and get out on the motorway. It's hard to drive around downtown London. Well, what's about to happen is we're gonna change the truck driver's job. You can already see the truck driver of the future outside of Las Vegas. They're pilots who go to work every day, but they don't get in a cockpit. They fly drones halfway around the world, and then they go home to their families at night. There's a company there called Starsky Robotics that is already building trucks like that. Truck driver does not get in the cab of the truck. Truck driver appears remotely and drives the truck through the city streets of London, gets it out on the M4, and heads it out west. 
picks up a second truck, drives through the streets of London, heads it toward Dover. Well, maybe post-Brexit, not so much, but we'll see about that. Having said that, he eventually gets five trucks on the road, or lorries, now picks up the first remotely, drives it to its location. So it's a combination of a automated vehicle and a human, the human doing the most difficult part of the task, i.e. getting it through the city streets, now drives five trucks, not one. And, of course, the skill set is Grand Theft Auto. They get to sleep with their husband or wife at night. They know their kids. They don't die in truck accidents. They don't suck fumes all day. A very different kind of truck driver. The challenge is the 60-year-old truck driver today who probably didn't play Grand Theft Auto. Will they be able to adapt? And I think that is the hardest problem in this whole story, is how do you take the older worker and help them adapt to the new world? That is the key question, isn't it? Because, I mean, as you were saying right at the start, this is happening at a pace that is unprecedented. So what do you think on that front? I mean, how can we manage this transition? And how hopeful are you that we can do this relatively smoothly without massive societal disruption? Well, I think there will be disruption. History tells us that these kinds of changes do produce disruption. The question is can we manage the disruption and can we minimize the costs for human beings? And I think, again, we're learning a lot about education. In the U.S., and I'm sure it's true in Britain, we have hundreds of startups in educational technology, right, enabling the individual to take charge of their own learning. And I think that is what we're going to see is more and more capability. I mean, we've done it in Salesforce. Our products got so complex, we had to radically improve our own training. And so we've set up a whole set of training capabilities for our own people, now made available to our customers. And that will become normal, just continuous learning through life, learning new skills and new capabilities. And I think that is the reality that is inevitable. Some people will struggle with that. Those people will be left behind. And I think that is the real issue. How do we deal with those people whose jobs have changed and are unable to learn the new skills, learn the new capabilities of working alongside the machines rather than actually carrying out all the tasks themselves? A lot of people in your part of the world on the West Coast believe that universal basic income is one way of addressing this What's your view on that? Well, it's a good question. It may come to that. I mean, we have some experiments going with that right now, I think, in Finland and I think Sweden and Oakland. We'll see. I'm frankly a bit skeptical of it, to be honest. But I do think this is a time for experimentation and find out what actually works. If it turns out we do need to help some people through this transition that will never be able to cope, then we may need that. But in all candor, I'm not sure we need to go that far. As I was mentioning, you're into scenario planning. So classically at Shell, where you used to work, there would always be four scenarios of the future. What is the scenario that you put most money on? A slightly slower transition than most people think. Actually applying a lot of this technology is not so easy. So my guess is the next, call it three to five years, will be a lot of experiments. Many things tried. Some things will fail. Others will succeed and will discover call it five to 10 years from now, what the real pattern of deployment is likely to be. I think the core architecture of the technology is going to be around the personal digital assistant. I think everyone will have a personal digital assistant. It's the next platform after the smartphone. The way I like to think about it is we can all remember the BlackBerry, right? And it was pretty funky, but it gave you a hint of what the smartphone was going to be like. The iPhone is what the BlackBerry wanted to be when it grew up. Well, Alexa, Google Home, Siri are to the future digital assistant as BlackBerry was to the iPhone. And you get a hint of what's to come. Everyone will have a personal digital assistant, call it five years from now, that will help organize their lives. And I think that will be the core organizing technology that will interact with many other systems. 
that takes us into a whole new realm of debate about the worries about surveillance capitalism. Mm. So how are we going to make sure that these digital assistants, which clearly are going to know absolutely everything about us, that we trust them to do the good things for us and we don't allow them to be a backdoor into allowing advertising or behavioral modification? Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. To take place. Well, you've gone to the exact right issue. I think one of the functions of these digital assistants is precisely to control access to my data. That is one of the things that will learn by interacting with me, what things I will choose to reveal to whom and what things I will choose to keep secret. I want the value for my data. Right now, Facebook or Google or Amazon get the value from my data. I want to get the value. Do you think it's worth very much? Absolutely, especially my data. But no, uh, what I'm saying is that the individual's data aggregated actually has high value. But yes. not on an individual basis. Well, also it? to organize services that are suitable for me. And so what I think is my personal digital assistant will know what I want to do, know a great deal about my data, and will reveal to my bank or to my retailer or to my government what it is that I choose to share with them for what purpose. And so a big function of the personal digital assistant is to manage the personal data economy. My data has value now, and I want to get the value from that data. Doesn't that mean redesigning the whole architecture of the web? I mean, yes, it does. I mean, yeah. Tim Berners-Lee is clearly working on that with the Solid Interrupt project, and there are many other people doing this as well. How hopeful are you that any of these architectures is going to work, given our path dependency on the existing systems? That's a very good question, and I think the answer is it is likely to work, but we don't know which ones of these games will actually play out. Which Look, you bet on? Well, I think very highly of Tim, all right? And he's got a lot of credibility, and he's got a following. So you'd have to start from there, in my view. But if you think about it, you know, I was there at the beginning of the Internet when it was the ARPANET. And the ARPANET was designed to facilitate the easy communication of information. We were sharing papers. The honest truth is we were playing games. But it was designed so we could share academic information, connected 70 universities. We've had to put security at the edge of the network. What is now going to happen is security is going to become inherent in the network. And, you know, this is a really, really big issue beyond the issues of privacy, beyond the issues of things like the role of personal data. The whole world of cybersecurity is a big, big, big issue. That having been said, the architecture of the web has to be redesigned to enable real security. And I think that is what's beginning to happen. Now, unfortunately, we're also moving to SplinterNet. So what happens in China will not be the same as in the U.S., will not be the same as in Europe. So the rules of the game in that respect are likely to be different in different parts of the world. But if we flip the web upside down, or as Tim would say, set it the right way up and have an architecture exactly as you describe... This is going to be fatal to a number of business models of yes. very powerful companies, isn't yes, it? Yes, it will. Absolutely. The ones who are dependent upon free and easy access to data will struggle with this. And I think Facebook will have a very hard time in this world. So history would suggest that they are going to be rather resistant to this. Yes, they will. But let's put it this way. There's a lot of dead companies that were resistant to the change around them. You know, there's only 200 companies left out of the Fortune 500 of 1970. Many have gone their way. I mean, look at companies like GE right? One of the giants of the industrial era, unable to make the transition to the digital era. 
So you think Facebook really doesn't have a sustainable business model? I do not think so. I think that they've undermined trust so badly in their core social network that I think that whole aspect of advertising-supported social network is likely to collapse. I think other parts of their business, like Instagram, are likely to survive. They have high value and do not suffer from some of the same kinds of issues. Which is going to be the bigger driver for change, do you think? Government regulation or other tech companies who see privacy by design in this new data architecture as the main competitive advantage? Well, I think it's both and. I don't think it's either or. I think regulation is important. I think our view, and I share that, is that the whole world will adopt something like GDPR with maybe the exception of China. We've passed something similar in California recently, and there's likely to be national legislation of that sort in the U.S., and I think it will become ubiquitous for good reason. So whether it's effective regulation or not, still an open question, but certainly regulation will be a big driving force. But other business models will come along to offer challenges to the existing models. I mean, that's what keeps happening. And, you know, if there's a real need for a social network that has real trust embedded in it, I think that will emerge. You've been around in the Valley for a long time. You've watched a lot of the cycles come and go. What's very striking is how the whole discourse about tech has changed massively over the last three or four years in particular, that back then they were all the cool kids on the block, and now there really are people who accuse them of undermining democracy and creating great inequalities in society and so on. What do you think has been the specific trigger for this tech clash, and what can the industry itself do to respond to it? Well, I think there are two very separate issues you just touched on. One is the kind of broader issue of the transformation of society around information, the issues like work. Okay, So I think it is incumbent upon the industry to address those issues of making sure that we are part of the process of retraining workers and sensitive to that. Also, the issues of access to data and privacy and being able to ensure that things like algorithms are accountable and so on. But those are quite legitimate issues that I think will be there. But I also think that what we're going to see is a huge wave of change focused on particularly a few companies. Look, nobody is challenging Intel or Cisco or even Apple very much, frankly. It is really focused very heavily on the social networks and especially Facebook. I think Google gets perhaps a fair amount of the blame. Maybe they don't deserve it as much, but it has really been focused heavily around Facebook for good reason. So I'm not sure that the phenomenon of the tech lash is as ubiquitous as it seemed. And I think, frankly, if we are able to manage the transition away from the kind of today's social network to tomorrow, some of this will begin to diminish. Now, you've been very vocal in the whole corporate social responsibility movement. And your boss, Mark Benioff, has also been very vocal on a lot of these issues as well. Do you think you're winning that fight? Are a lot of the big tech companies now realizing that profits are not the only purpose of their existence? Absolutely. Mark and Salesforce take very seriously the idea of stakeholder capitalism. And we see many stakeholders. We see, of course, our customers, our employees, our communities, our environment, our governments are all part of the stakeholders that we have to relate to. And I think, frankly, the success of Salesforce is an inspiration to other people. You know, we can hire almost anybody. People want to work for us. We're number two on Fortune's list of best places to work. Would you go to work for Facebook today? Uh, You know, yeah, they may pay well, but what are you going to tell your kids or your friends and so on? So the truth is people want to work for, customers want to buy from, regulators want to talk to companies like Salesforce, frankly, that take these issues quite seriously. Wouldn't all these people actually want to go and start their own startup? 
Well, some of them would, of course. And look, we encourage that. We have people we call boomerangs. People who come into Salesforce, they work for us, they go out and start a startup. We buy their company, they come back in again. We have several people who've come in several times in that way. Salesforce is also quite well known for its 111 model. That's Can right. you tell us about that? Yeah, this was, again, part of Mark's genius. Uh, when he started the company, he'd had a kind of spiritual epiphany that led to the creation of Salesforce. What was that spiritual epiphany? Well, frankly, he'd gone to India. After he'd left Oracle, he was kind of uh, troubled, right? And he spent a fair amount of time reflecting on himself, on the role of business, on the role of business in the world. And out of that came a deep understanding that business could be a force for good, not just simply a source for profit and growth. And so when he started Salesforce, he said, I'm going to also create a great engine for philanthropy. And the 111 model was 1% of the equity, 1% of the time, and 1% of the profit. And he basically said, well, we didn't have any equity, time, or profit, so it was easy to decide that, right? But what it really means is that we now have about 35,000 nonprofits who use our products for free. Every employee is asked to volunteer up to seven days a year on company time. I have my own projects. I do scenario planning for the Bay Area with regional planning authorities as a volunteer, right? We sure need it. And that's my volunteer project. And then whenever we create equity, we put money in our foundation. And we've given away over $200 million for things like children's health, oceans, and extreme poverty. So that's very much a part of our identity. It's what also attracts people. It's one of the reasons I'm there. I think Mark is an amazing moral leader. That's why I choose to be there. I didn't have to go to Salesforce at 65. I'm the oldest employee in the company. I didn't need to start a new career at 65. I'm there in part because of this. It also aids our recruiting. People want to work for us for that reason. It's highly inspiring. And now 3,000 other companies have adopted our model. So that says something. Now, you mentioned the subject of age. I believe you are 72. And you were one of the founders with the legendary Stuart Brand of the Long Now Foundation. That's right. The whole purpose of which is to have a longer term vision of what's happening. Where do you think we are going longer term with technology? There are a lot of dystopian fears around at the moment. Give us the argument for why we ought to be more optimistic for the long term future of the technology. Well, look, if you look at the state of humankind today as compared to where it was a century ago or two centuries ago or three centuries ago, it's hard not to be optimistic. More people live better today than have ever in human history. In the last 20 years, China alone has lifted almost 500 million people out of extreme poverty. In 1960, the average person in the world lived very poorly. Today, the average person in the world lives reasonably well. Yes, we've still got 2 billion people to go. I mean, we've not solved all the world's problems. But the pace and structure of progress is really quite profound. Are there going to be big issues? Well, sure, we have climate change, a huge challenge, international conflict. I'm really concerned about the stress in the international system. But the fundamental arc of human history, as science and technology have advanced, is to give us more capability, more choices, more freedom of action, more opportunity for genuine human life to be improved. So when I think about the prospects for my son, who's 28 years old, I'm enormously optimistic. I think he's going to live centuries. I think the prospects for him on this planet and maybe elsewhere in the universe are really quite remarkable. So, you know, we've barely begun to touch science. We're discovering all kinds of fundamental advances in biology. CRISPR, right? You think about what CRISPR means. We're going to eliminate an enormous number of genetic diseases. Probably in 20 or 30 years, sickle cell anemia on the planet will be gone. You think about how much life that will mean for Africans. Enormous impact. We'll probably eliminate malaria. So you start thinking about some of these human conditions. I'm incredibly optimistic. I think life will be longer, better, cleaner. 
Our cities are so much cleaner today. London in the 50s, what the air and water was like. Now, I mean, it's still got pollution issues and so on. It's not perfect. But in Los Angeles, you can see the San Gabriel Mountains where you couldn't before. The average car today is 98% cleaner than the car of 30 years ago. So when I look at the future, the issues are huge, but our capacity to rise to them is also huge. So the technology is there to massively improve our future, but it does depend on us managing that technology wisely, doesn't it? Absolutely. Use the keyword wisdom, right? And that's often in short supply. You know, and when we look around the political system today, that does worry me. All right. Well, I think we ought to steer off that and end on an optimistic note. But thank you very much. Thank you. Glad to be here. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, do let us know what you think of our show. You can email us at tectonic at ft.com. And if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.